Hi, everyone. Welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film, always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Nick Workrout. And I'm Sophia Simonello. And we are back. We'll be covering two horror movies from the 1970s, one that got 10 Oscar nominations with two wins, that being The Exorcist, and the other that got only two nominations and no wins, which was Carrie. I'm thrilled, honestly, to be talking about both of these movies today. I think that both of these are incredibly influential when we think of horror movies, specifically The Exorcist. And, you know, we talk often about horror movies, horror performances that we love that get snubbed at the Oscars. But here we have a case where the Academy decided to be cool and give these movies nominations. And in the case of The Exorcist, two wins. Not something that would happen today, I don't think. And I had seen one of these before, and one of these was a new watch for me. So it's always great seeing new classic horror movies that Mm -hmm. really hold up, and I am excited to talk about both of these. Let's get started with the big one, The Exorcist, which came out in 1973. Description here, 12-year-old Reagan McNeil begins to adapt an explicit new personality as strange events befall the local area of Georgetown. Her mother becomes torn between science and superstition in a desperate bid to save her daughter and ultimately turns to her last hope, Father Damien Karras, a troubled priest who is struggling with his own faith. This was directed by William Friedkin. It was based on the book by William Peter Blatty, who also wrote the screenplay. It stars Ellen Burstyn, Linda Blair, Jason Miller, and Max von Sydow. It won two Oscars, Screenplay and Sound, and it was nominated for eight others, Best Picture, Director for Friedkin, Actress for Burstyn, Supporting Actress for Blair, Supporting Actor for Miller, Art Direction, Cinematography, and Editing. Other awards it won, it won three Golden Globes, Screenplay, Director, and Supporting Actress for Blair. We will definitely talk about her award season run because it is very interesting. So this is still Warner Brothers' highest grossing film adjusted for inflation. It made a ton of money. I think adjusted it's $2.2 billion, which is wild. And that also makes this the highest grossing R-rated film of all time. Nuts. So when you look back at this film, it's pretty funny because it was released right around Christmas time in 1973. It was only in 24 theaters, but because it had this word of mouth behind it, people were saying, you know, you have to see The Exorcist. It expanded. And this actually influenced the rollout for Jaws as well, which came later, which is kind of the child of this movie in a lot of ways. What I knew about this movie before I'd even seen it, weirdly enough, was the audience reaction to it. People were on call in case people in the crowd passed out. There was puking. People were walking out. And I think we hear about that today. I think most recently with Titan, the Palm Door winner. But having seen that one too, I mean, it just doesn't even come close to how provocative this movie was and still is. I think this is like the most influential horror movie of all time. And Like, one of the most influential films, period. Influential and popular. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously by the box office numbers, but I feel like everybody has seen this or knows what it's about. And I think what they're doing here, they accomplish so well, because it is frightening. And I read a little about the backstory of the production and 
some of the high tensions that were on set between director and actors and actors and stunt people kind of it sounds like a horrible time (laughs) it does maybe we can save like the Friedkin discussion of like his choices and his behavior on set I think just generally when did you see this for the first time and maybe how did you see it was it at home did you go to the theater I don't have some like very traumatizing childhood story like you probably do. Um, I actually only saw this for the first time last year. Oh my god. Did we wow. talk about it on the pod? I can't remember. Maybe we did on our horror fantasy draft. I can't remember though. I, that's probably why I watched it too, um, now that I think about it. Yeah, so this is like fairly new, but I loved it and I rewatched it. Still great. When I was little, I didn't really watch a lot of classic horror movies. I kind of touched on this last week when we got into some of the Uh B horror movies that you hadn't seen. So I'm glad I'm finally seeking out all of the classics. But what was your story in watching this or how many times have you seen this? You know, I've told listeners many times that I was allowed to watch a lot when I was younger because my dad in particular just felt that I should see all of these horror movies. But The Exorcist was the one that I was not allowed to watch. And that, of course, made me want to seek it out even more because I knew, you know, all these other movies like The Omen and Carrie and The Shining that I had watched really young and then it terrified me. I thought, okay, well, why am I allowed to watch these but not this? Like, what is Mm -hmm. it about The Exorcist that I am not allowed to watch? So, of course, I watched it when I wasn't supposed to, but I watched it on TV. It was on cable. Mm. So... Of course, I was like, this isn't that scary. What are they talking about? Yeah. Years later, I actually watched it. I was probably in high school and I watched a DVD and I realized that I had watched a heavily edited version. (laughs) (laughs) Was it the director's cut too? Not the director's cut. It was the theatrical cut. Still, yeah. But I was absolutely horrified and I got it. I realized, I think, what it was about this one that was just off limits to me and why I shouldn't have seen it. It has stayed with me ever since. I've watched it probably once a year since then, like around like every October mm-hmm. I'll revisit it. I'm a theatrical cut fan. I have seen the director's cut, but I think I always stick with the theatrical cut. I did watch both of the endings and I really like the theatrical one. I think it ends on a sharper note. Mm-hmm. I also read something about how for the TV movie... Friedkin didn't bring back Mercedes McCambridge, who does the demon voice. Uh-huh. So I feel like that, let alone like the swearing, the insults, the acts that mm-hmm. Reagan or Demon Reagan gets up to, that absolutely would not be on TV. Like there are so many reasons the TV one would fall short. Yeah. I mean, I'll never forget the first time I saw the crucifix masturbation scene. But <laughs> yeah. anyway, <laughs> we can get to that later on. So specifically with this movie, what do you think makes it scary? I think starting off in Iraq adds to the spookiness of it. I really didn't expect that. So you're getting this like side or backstory and the music there puts you in this world. It's eerie. And then once you get to the exorcism part, I think the documentary cinema verite feel of it all is why it works. It's based on a real story, and it feels real, and that's why it's so terrifying. And then you add in a 12-year-old girl 
or in the book, the real story, a, a young boy, but it's still like this is happening to a child, like these terrible things. And then Friedkin just adds layer on layer with the special effects and a great score and great acting. So it all comes together really well. What made it really scary for you? I think what makes it the scariest movie I think I've still ever seen is that feeling that it is fully based in reality. You mentioned the documentary-like feel, and you know Friedkin had made documentaries before he made The French Connection, before he made The Exorcist, and I love how it has that feel to it. I'm also a big fan of the opening. He fought really hard to have that in this movie because he also felt that it was absolutely essential. And I feel that also with these stories about religion, about demons, about the devil and God, there's this theme of universality that's there. It's in the film, it's in Catholicism that makes it that much scarier. Like this can happen to anyone anywhere. We are just small little humans in this vast universe and anything can happen to you. And I feel like that really adds to it. Also, you mentioned the music at the beginning. Anyone who loves The Exorcist, there is a documentary on Shudder called Leap of Faith, and it's just a 90-minute interview with Friedkin about making The Exorcist. It's fascinating, and you learn so much about his process and everything, but one thing about the music at the beginning that I love is that he said that what it was was they're chanting in Arabic, and the first line of the movie is God is good, God is great. And then Mm -hmm. it just totally devolves, obviously. Mm -hmm. You descend into hell throughout the movie. So I think the opening is crucial to the rest of the story. And the slow burn style as well makes it so scary. If the exorcism itself lasted the entire movie, or if it was just this 90-minute movie about an exorcism, it wouldn't work nearly as well as it does. You have to get attached to the characters. You have to build up slowly to that point to make it really deliver. I also think why the beginning really helps and really adds to the horror is that it makes Father Marin this foreboding presence because we don't come back to him for quite a long time. Mm -hmm. And that fact alone makes you think, okay, wow, he knows what he's doing. He's been at excavation sites around the world looking for Mm -hmm. religious or satanic I guess artifacts and like he is the real deal so if anyone can do this he can so when he comes in and you see him standing in that light like you know we're Mm -hmm. getting to the nitty-gritty like it's about to go down yeah and you know that these priests like go on these trips these pilgrimages and I love how Friedkin actually shot a real archaeological dig that was happening. And Mm -hmm. I have always thought of Max von Sydow as being old. He's only 44 when they made this movie. They made him up to look so old. Yes, that's all makeup. (laughs) Like, in my brain, he's always been 80. So... (laughs) But yeah, that's all makeup. They caked that on to make him look like an elderly man, and it really worked. But then we cut to Georgetown... And what I love about it being on location in Georgetown, again, is that this feels like a real place. You know, in other horror movies, I feel like whether it's a modern one today and you just get all this CGI or it feels like any town USA, here we have not only this beautiful place that looks like incredibly angular and really old and cosmopolitan, you have this part of the city that is 
steeped in Catholic tradition. Georgetown is like the signature Catholic college in the U.S. And having that history there, and I think also knowing in the back of your mind that you have probably that help and that assistance that close, it just adds another layer to this story. Is there any reference to the McNeil family being religious? Because I feel like with how the story plays out, they avoid religion. They're only talking to doctors until they've tried every single thing biologically with Reagan. Yeah, so they're not religious. Chris McNeil, I gathered that she's an atheist. And Reagan didn't grow up in religion. They are transplants to DC because Chris is there. She's an actress working on her movie, like on location. So they're just kind of dropped in this odd location, but they're not religious. And I think that's really important because I think that Friedkin himself approaches this movie like he's a believer. I think he sees that that is something that he has to do in order to capture this like a documentary, but they're not. And I think that's a really important layer to the story is Mm -hmm. that they've exhausted all of their options by the end. And they have to admit that it's something that they can't explain. And that, that makes it that much scarier. There cannot be a single person who walks into a room and sees a bed shaking like that and thinks it's something to do with a medical issue. But then on the other side, if you're explaining that to somebody, no one is going to believe you either. So it's Mm -hmm. like very much even just a religious trope of believing in what you see and hear. But it does sound so far-fetched that it doesn't seem like it could be real. It doesn't. And I love how it starts really slowly. You have all these little clues and these odd behaviors that are rolled out. Like when she finds the Ouija board, which is a big no, big no (laughs) in life, in horror movies. But I don't even think we can assume that this is connected to the Ouija board. We have that much ambiguity going on here. But I will Mm -hmm. say the devil like knows what he's doing, reaching out to a horse girl and calling himself Captain Howdy. (laughs) The most unsettling scene to me at the beginning, though, is when she goes downstairs, Reagan, to that party, which to me is just like such a DC party. You have people with just the weirdest occupations all in one location. And she just says, you're going to die up there in peace. Mm-hmm. And you're like, what the <laughs> yeah actual? <laughs> it's almost like he drops so many bombs during the movie because when anything happens, you just don't expect it to happen. Mm-mm. Like that's our first moment. Other moments of just lines that you wouldn't expect her to say. Do you have a favorite? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I have two written down, and I cannot repeat either of them. <laughs> oh, my God. I watched this with some friends who hadn't seen it either, and when she said these lines, they just looked over and was like, did that really happen? Because <laughs> that whole side thing with the devil sounding like his mother and that trauma and experience that he's trying to unpack and handle Mm -hmm. like that adds another layer to the story and I think it helps make these character dynamics and their relationships more complex yeah and what I really love is that you have these two stories that you know will connect based on a shot that he sets up so ingeniously I love it deeply when Chris 
is walking, Ellen Burstyn, she's walking and she looks over and she sees Damien Karras having this conversation and you want to overhear it, but a plane cuts in, like the sound of this plane flying by, which mm-hmm. one happens in DC all the time. You always hear helicopters and planes, they interrupt everything. But that's just such like a real documentary feel like moment it feels unplanned but also it's like the universe telling you like you can't hear and yet you'll know eventually and she's still it's another area that she doesn't know about and she has so many questions but I love Jason Miller in his performance as Father Karras I think that he is the original hot priest like we talk about that with Fleabag but to me he's the original (laughs) and I love how he has these questions around his faith that are at the center of his story and Everything with his mother, it gave me like Tony and Livia Soprano vibes, but that shouldn't be scary. This should make you feel badly for him and for her because this relationship is strained, but the way that the editing works makes it scary. The scene in particular that I always think of is when the sound cuts out and you see him like on that median, like on the island, like waving to his mother as she Mm -hmm. is, like, coming up the subway exit, and then she goes down back into Mm -hmm. the subway tunnel. It's like he might see his mother as, like, someone who he's lost, who is now descending into hell, and he feels all this guilt around that. I like how you have that story operating at the same time, because I think you need that to understand his character and what he brings to his -hmm. experience with Chris and Reagan later on. Yeah, his involvement and ultimately complications with handling this in a objective or distanced viewpoint that he can't in the end. And the thing is with that is that that objective viewpoint, that scientific approach doesn't work for them, right? They're not getting the answers Mm -hmm. that they need from that way of thinking. So you need someone with this way of thinking to solve the problem ultimately. And he does in a way. While we're on Jason Miller really quick, I learned that originally an actor named Stacy Keach signed on to play Father Karras, but Friedkin had seen this play that Jason Miller was in called That Winning Season, and Miller read The Exorcist, reached out to Friedkin, and says, like, I am Father Karras. I need to play this part. And he's like, absolutely not. We already cast the role. He's like, I'm going to do a screen test. Like, I want to do a screen test. He's like, fine, you can do a screen test, but you have to pay for it. Like, we have already cast this. You're doing this knowing that we've cast this movie. So he shot a few scenes with Burstyn. Ellen Burstyn interviewed him. And Friedkin knew he had to cast Jason Miller instead. Wow. So they paid out Stacey Keach because he was signed on. And they cast Jason Miller. And I think it was a gamble that totally paid off. He's perfect in this part. Had either of them been in a lot of movies at that point? Jason Miller was a complete unknown. He was a stage actor. Um, Stacey Keach had been in movies before, though. So that was part of the gamble here. Okay. So going back to the science of it all for a minute, I think the medical scenes are also horrifying because you know that this isn't the problem. And they're running all these tests on her. She has a spinal tap and... Like, they show everything. Like, as someone who's more squeamish to, like, medical things and to horror movies, those scenes are really tough for me. But we got a question from the futurist, and this is something that I brought up to you yesterday, which is so funny. And he said, 
Were you aware that the man who plays radiological technologist in the hospital scene was a serial killer who was later suspected in the murders that influenced cruising? This was complete news to me. Just absolute horror. Right? I had no idea. Like, there are so many rumors surrounding, like, this production and what went on. But this Mm -hmm. is the most frightening thing. The man, his name is Paul Bateson. And I love pointing him out when I watch this movie because it is just, it's really terrifying when you think that they accidentally included a serial killer. And he was convicted in 1979 of the murder of a film critic. He was sentenced to 20 years in prison from there, but prior to this trial, he was implicated in this series of killings that had been unsolved, and these were the killings that were in cruising of these gay men in Manhattan. Oh, my God. So this could have happened, I suppose. I need to read more, I guess, about this man, Mm -hmm. but these could have happened prior to The Exorcist, but... Yeah, he wasn't convicted until much later. But he didn't know. Yeah. I mean, in a time of cancel culture, if you found out that somebody in a different movie was a murderer, would you watch that movie? Yeah. If it's... (laughs) Sorry. I mean, yeah, if it's a supporting, like, minor... I mean, I still watch this movie, and I know that there's a murderer in it. He is... Yes. I guess that adds to it is that he's, like, this very minute character, but, like... You can't watch Call Me By Your Name and not think it's cringy to an extent anymore. True. But again, very different. Yeah. Yeah. I think that one is like to more to do too with like him being the lead and Elio being younger and all of that stuff going on. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so I did know. And this is one of my favorite facts. And I'm glad that you know it now. And I hope it doesn't ruin your subsequent you viewings of The Exorcist if you decide to return. <laughs> The one medical thing that really grossed me out was the arterial blood squirting out Mm. as they're putting in the tube. Mm -hmm. Like, that was good. Again, like, feels like a documentary, but has Mm -hmm. this layer of horror to it. Yeah. Oh, I know what I was going to ask you also. (laughs) So in the movie, as these medical tests come back and there's nothing there and her behavior escalates, gets more and more unhinged, Chris has this assistant who stays in the house with her. I'm wondering, do you quit or do you stay if you're her? Because this has always like been a question in my mind when I'm watching this. I just think like I would exit the premises. I would quit. Even if I was working for a famous actress. You are staying in a house where there is some supernatural being and her daughter is becoming demonized. Like you don't want to be around that. No, no. Like, if there was any chance that it could affect you, like, why? I don't know. Like, Hollywood, it's wanting to get in the business. It's mm-hmm. like, how far would you go? <laughs> I know. I'm kind of thinking of it like, if I was Diane Keaton's assistant and this was happening to her, I probably would stay. Like, maybe I would. <laughs> So talking about Friedkin a little bit, you've seen his documentary, so you've seen a lot more of him than I have. I watched one interview with him, and he was very defensive about the filming and his adaptation and what people were saying about it. And then we hear all of these things that happened on set where he shot a gun off right by Jason Miller's ear because he wanted a real effect from him. And Jason like threw a fit and was like, 
why did you do this? I'm an actor. Like I can give you surprised without you needing to like blow my eardrum out. So there are so many of those things that happen too. So I guess if you want to talk about what you like about Friedkin and I guess how hearing all of these things still made you think like, oh, he's a rock star (laughs) for taking control of this production and like making sure he made his point. Well, I'll start out, I think. So originally, Friedkin wasn't the director that the studio had in mind for this. They considered Stanley Kubrick, which I love to imagine what that version would be Mm -hmm. like, Arthur Penn, and even Mike Nichols. So I think that all three of those versions could work in different ways. But I do think that Friedkin is best suited for this. And that's why I'm happy that he had it. And he describes in the documentary, like so many serendipitous things happening that made this all come together. Like he knew exactly what he wanted this picture to look like. And as far as like the rifle with the blanks in it that he was shooting off, or like shooting the bedroom in a refrigerator, making Mm -hmm. everyone freezing cold. I'm not necessarily going to defend those things, but what I am going to say is that like his inspirations are pretty interesting when you think about the history of the stuff. So we talked about on our episode about 1951, George Stevens, who directed A Place in the Sun, who won Best Director that year. Friedkin actually read an article about George Stevens, and in this magazine, there's a picture of Stevens laying on top of the set holding a gun and he would do the same things when directing to get emotion out of his cast. So he was inspired, I think, by people earlier who used similar techniques to elicit emotion and surprise out of his actors. And I think in some instances, it was the actor's idea to take it to the next level. Mercedes McCambridge in particular, that seemed to be her own idea. Mercedes McCambridge was a recovering alcoholic and thought to get the demon voice right, she needed to start drinking again. She needed to smoke again. She needed to eat raw eggs. She needed to be Mm -hmm. strapped to a chair to feel pain to do this performance. I would have a really hard time with that. But that's their choice, I guess, as an artist. So I think it was a combination of, like, his influences, his inspirations, decisions that Mm -hmm. he thought were right but definitely wouldn't fly in today's climate mixed with what the actors felt was necessary for their performances. And in some cases, I think a director needs to, to let their actors do what they do best and know that. But I think it's an interesting story. It's problematic, for sure, through today's lens. But interesting when you think about, like, what what went on on this set. And Mm -hmm. he certainly isn't the only one. And that doesn't make it better. But You mentioned Mike Nichols being in the talks for directing this movie. Mm -hmm. There was a quote why he turned this down. He goes, I'm not going to stake my career in the picture's success or failure on a 12-year-old girl. There it is. I mean, (laughs) I, I get that. Like, and Mike Nichols has made incredible films. But yeah, he's just not suited for this. And I'm sure Kubrick would have done even worse things. Like, please think about that for a second. He traumatized Shelley Duvall in The Shining. Yeah. But I also think with Friedkin, I think that his interest in and need for ambiguity, because that's how life is and that's how documentary filmmaking is. You just roll and you don't know what's coming. I feel like that really, that suits this movie really well. It does. And all of those elements are why this movie works too. So it's kind of like, you can't have one without the other, which, yeah, not 
super great, but it works. <laughs> it's why nothing today has come close to being as provocative. Mm-hmm. The whole thing, if we use another religious analogy here, there is like B-E and A-E. There's before the exorcist and there's after the exorcist. Like that's it. That is the turning point. And I think that even makes a connection to Carrie, which comes a few years later. These two movies have some very similar themes. The biggest being this overwhelming fear of the main female character's sexuality and fear about her growing up and becoming a woman. And in The Exorcist, we have the green vomit, which was actually pea soup. This was a metaphor for menstruation. And Mm. there was an article I read that talks about this on Cinephilia and Beyond. And they say this was preempting Carrie as the exorcist is drenched in a kind of menstrual panic. And that is the literal imagery we get in Carrie. So I think Mm -hmm. that is a really, one, fascinating connection, but two, in how they both show them very differently. Which makes me wonder if that's why your parents didn't want you to see this (laughs) when you were young, because you were like a Reagan of sorts. Oh my God. I mean, yeah, I would have been her age, which is like when I wanted to watch this. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I'm I'm glad they didn't let me. That seems like a good choice. <laughs> Do you have any other like favorite scenes in the movie? We can get to the exorcism in a second. That's the main part. I do like the scene when they show Chris acting on location mm-hmm. in that protest scene. It adds some great development to her character. But it really comes down to the exorcism. Like those, that is what you think of when you think of this movie. Mm-hmm. Like the image of the ghoulish Reagan face is seared into your brain forever. Mm-hmm. Like the vomit, the bed rising, shaking, the black tongue, like Ooh, all the of tongue. these things. Yeah. <laughs> the tongue is really bad. <laughs> Do you have any other favorite scenes besides the exorcism? Yeah, my other favorite is when Lee J. Cobb is talking to Ellen Burstyn. They're sitting at the table, and basically he has to explain to her that he thinks her daughter pushed Burke, this director, out the window and down those stairs, the iconic Mm -hmm. exorcist stairs in Georgetown. Highly recommend a visit. Because the way that the camera moves slowly in on his face, slowly in on her face... I love that. I think that's like, that is the core of the story. Like you get all the fear, all of the tension there, even in a scene that isn't as, I'll say, action packed as the exorcism. Well, let's get into that scene then, because I think leading up to it, we're seeing Reagan slowly change into this possessed creature. Really, Mm -hmm. her face is just totally transformed. So once we get into the scene and she's strapped to the bed, I think what's also another great use of imagery here is her white gown and how mm-hmm. like naive or virginal right. she kind of is. And the other part to the exorcism, and I think why it was so shocking and why audiences loved it, is that I'm assuming these rites are what they would actually do during an exorcism. And I think the public getting an insight to this is like BTS religion. <laughs> So it is cool to listen to them reading these Latin verses and going through this and seeing Reagan's struggle or the demon inside of her struggle to get mm-hmm. out. I also just before we even get inside, I 
think that this is one of the best movie posters ever. I love that shot from the poster of Marin. You just see the lamppost and him standing by it and that light from her bedroom window. I love it. I think that's just a beautiful shot. It's based on a painting called The Empire of Light. They knocked it off in The Conjuring 3. (laughs) (laughs) But then you go upstairs and just... I think you're right about like the behind the scenes religion and the power of Christ compels you. Amazing line. Her face is so cracked, like that makeup that's on. I think because of the tone that's been established throughout the movie in this documentary like feel, you don't think anybody is safe. At least, you know, watching movies before this or other movies up to this point, you think that the priests are going to live, but you don't know that because of the tone that Friedkin has established here, which is Mm -hmm. that this little girl and the demon, they have like superhuman strength, will say absolutely heinous things, be incredibly violent. It's what you've been waiting for the whole movie. Mm -hmm. And even if you've enjoyed the movie up to that point, which we both have, it's like you're finally here. This is the moment that's like bringing you home. And it's Mm -hmm. almost two hours into the movie. My other favorite part of this movie and this scene is there are really quick edits to the face of a devil. Mm-hmm. And they're really quick. You have to be watching mm-hmm. to get it. And then at the very end, also another connection to Carrie is that we have these references to Psycho. And mm-hmm. we got that superimposed devil over Reagan's face during this scene, too, which I really liked. Yes, there are so many connections to Psycho in both movies. But in this one, too, I love the shot of, I can't remember the character now, it's escaping me, when she uses all of her power to just, like, fling him back. And the shot of him falling reminded me exactly of the shot of Arbogast falling down the stairs. Mm -hmm. It's, like, almost identical. I loved that. So we mentioned at the top of the episode that The Exorcist got... 10 Oscar nominations and two wins, which is really crazy. The first horror movie to be nominated for Best Picture, but to get 10 nominations, that's a big deal for any film, not just horror movies. So Mm -hmm. I've always been very excited by this when you look back at Oscar history. Like, this is a pretty cool year. And there were also some really good films that came out in 1973. So even though it had 10 nominations, do you think anything was snubbed as far as nominations go the one that's surprising and maybe this wouldn't even count but there wasn't even a visual effects or special effects category at the oscars this year and i was going to ask you like oh would you have nominated it for that or do you think that's applicable here but there's just no category they achieve most of it i feel like with makeup with editing and with the sound So I almost feel like it's okay Mm -hmm. that I didn't get a nomination there. But there's no hairstyling or makeup category either. Well, we didn't get hairstyling and makeup until the 80s. Which I would have considered Reagan here, like almost on par with the Elephant Man. And how they make her look and how she changes. Yeah. I mean, Reagan's look entirely is iconic. And... Like, the way they have her face just, like, cracked open with those sores and, like, her lips mm-hmm. are so chapped, her coloring. Even Max von Sydow's makeup making him look ancient when he's 44, I think some of it might be a little much, but 
I think just as far as it goes, to me, it is similar to like a creature design like they do in totally. the shape of water, like what they're doing with her. So I agree with you. Like I can definitely see a case for this being, you know, what starts that category instead of the elephant man. What other categories do you think were snubbed, if any? I think as far as nominations go, 10 makes sense. I think the bigger thing with snubs definitely comes down to winners. The one I think that hurts the most is Best Actress, weirdly, because I think Ellen Burstyn is phenomenal in this movie. Like, she has to play this woman whose daughter is possessed by a demon, Pazuzu. She does everything that she can to protect her and take care of her, and there's just so much in her performance. And it's upsetting because I love Glenda Jackson. I really, really do, but A Touch of Class is not a great movie, and it's not memorable in the way that The Exorcist is and I feel like this is you know another case of a woman in a horror movie not winning the Oscar. I'm wondering was Max von Sydow considered lead for this movie? I would guess he was considered supporting. They put both of them as supporting. I feel like Miller could almost be lead. Yeah. Best actor that year though was stacked. Jack Lemon, Marlon Brando, Jack Nicholson, Al Pacino and Robert Redford. Like are you <laughs> kidding me? <laughs> Yeah, maybe it was just very much a strategic move then. (laughs) Yeah, I think we should talk about Linda Blair a little bit and just her nomination because she won the Golden Globe but didn't win the Oscar. The Oscar went to Tatum O'Neill for Paper Moon. And Tatum was 10 years old when she won, being the youngest winner, which I think it's funny that you have two child performances in this category. But we got a question from James at All About Oscar. He said, does the controversy around Mercedes McCambridge doing Reagan's demon voice and double acting some of the more taxing scenes take away from Linda Blair's Oscar nomination? If I'm correct, it was not so known beforehand, but by voting it was, perhaps hindering her chances. I feel like this is something we've talked about a few times on the pod. And for better or worse, it may or may not affect their chances. When I was watching the movie, I was hoping it wasn't Linda Mm -hmm. doing that voice. So (laughs) part of me is like, I am totally fine with this. (laughs) Yeah, it's hard because like Friedkin made her say everything. So like she is actually saying all of those lines, like everything horrifying you're hearing Linda Blair actually had to say and you can look on YouTube and hear like what she sounded like Mm -hmm. which she's not exactly giving a performance (laughs) but also like she's a child having to say some of those things so I can't really imagine like what that must have Mm -hmm. been like for her but I would guess that it did take away probably from the way that like voters felt about her from her reputation I guess like in this category because if you did think that was her for some reason, I that would be horrifying and she would instantly get my vote. I, I just don't know how anyone could, I guess, think that that was a child doing that. So Did she know at the time that she was going to be dubbed by another character? I'm assuming so. I think that she did, yeah. Okay. And maybe that's why she didn't go all out with her performance and like delivery. I don't know. I mean, that could be. And there's a a whole controversy around credit because some people say that Mercedes McCambridge didn't want credit. She didn't want to be attached. But then, of course, like when the movie came out, she wanted credit or like she was mad that she wasn't credited. There are all sorts of competing and conflicting stories around her credit. 
if you do watch mm-hmm. the theatrical version now, she is credited. Like, I saw her name. I made sure I looked for it. Okay. <laughs> but back then, that was a big deal. So I could see it in a similar way that, you know, with Audrey Hepburn in My Fair Lady, it's just the mm-hmm. way certain things come out and how they come out, if that affects what people think of your performance and if it's, you know, if it holds up as being authentic. And I think she also had another child performer in the category. That's a problem for her. That never happens. So I'm sure that, like, took away from it a little bit. From her chances of winning? Yeah. I need to watch Paper Moon. It's another one I haven't seen. And, like, the daughter of a famous person. Like, it just kind of feels like Tatum O'Neill would be stiff competition for her. And then on Mm -hmm. top of the voice issue, a no-go. Director is also a great stacked category. George Roy Hill won for The Sting, but we also had George Lucas for American Graffiti, Ingmar Bergman for Cries and Whispers, Friedkin for The Exorcist, and Bertolucci for Last Tango in Paris. And those are all really well-known movies. Mm-hmm. So for screenplay and sound, which they won for, do you think The Exorcist was the overwhelming winner here? Or do you think it had competition or would have been close? I think sound was a runaway winner so the sound engineer robert knudsen he's won three oscars for cabaret the exorcist and et like incredible movies just to win your oscars Mm -hmm. for and the sound mixer he also has wins chris newman he won for the exorcist amadeus and the english patient he was nominated for the godfather silence of the lambs like they did really, really incredible work and in movies mm-hmm. that we still, I think, hold really high today. And the sound work, will t- I'll, not to step on my answer for later, but it's just like the best thing about the movie, I think. In screenplay, too, I mean, it was a well-known book at the time. And part of the story around it was like it being this adaptation and who was going to be attached to it. So I feel like that was where a lot of the hype was centered Mm -hmm. so i feel like it makes sense and that's where it has lighter competition too than some of the other categories there was another moment from that interview of friedkin where he talks about the book and how it's going to be regarded like edgar Allan poe works are i was like "Mm." (laughs) you do not like him (laughs) personally i think friedkin should have gotten an oscar for writing because he tore apart William Peter Blatty's screenplay and basically rewrote mm-hmm. it. So <laughs> different sides of the coin. Mm-hmm. So I'm guessing you don't think he should have won director. Are you a big fan of the sting? I did like the sting. I wouldn't say that I didn't want him to win director. I think it's just a tough list of five. And with the sting winning picture two, I wonder if he even had a chance And George Roy Hill won the DGA. So it just, I think, like, you're right. I don't know how much of a chance he had. I think in a lot of ways, its nominations were its wins. And this was a thing where at the time, like, The Sting was also really popular and did really well at the Mm -hmm. box office, had Paul Newman and Robert Redford. So it was up against another really popular film of the year. It wasn't, like, a random movie just, like, came in and stole its Oscar kind of thing. So, yeah, I think the two make sense. I would have voted for Bergman or Friedkin, either one. Not that I don't like The Sting, but, you know, I'm always a fan of a split. How do you think today's Academy would receive this movie? It's maybe not a no-go, but I would almost say nothing. Just because it's so horrifying. Like, 
to have a nomination, like I could see that, but to have it in picture or director or any of those big categories, like that's for sure not happening. I think it could still be a really popular movie, but I just don't think the Academy would have appreciated it or wanted to award something like this. I totally agree. I think what makes me so sad always when I think about the 70s and and it being my favorite decade is because it's it's the last time that the critical consensus and the box office and the Oscars kind of aligned. The things that the people liked were really good. <laughs> and the the taste today and like what people are putting out and what people want to see in theaters is just it's just different today. Like people aren't flocking mm-hmm. to the theaters to see The Exorcist or The Godfather or network like it's just not it's not happening so i'll always be a little sad about that but that's a long-winded way to say no i do not think the academy today would go for this and if you could give this movie one oscar what would you give it i would obviously give it best picture but we're not doing that so i would give it best sound the sound work in this movie is incredible the way that they weave together so many different sounds like when you hear the recording of Reagan's demon voice, like speaking English backwards and a pig squealing cuts in the way that the music is used. I just, (laughs) it's really, really excellent work. And I think like technically my favorite thing about the movie. What about you? I would do the same thing. I think the way it weaves in and out of diegetic and non-diegetic sound too, it's the discretion of using sound in the right ways and at the right times. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what helps this movie really hit and succeed. Okay. Are you ready to move on to Carrie? Yes. I'm so excited. I'm so glad that you finally watched this movie too. My God. So description here, Carrie White, a shy and troubled teenage girl who is tormented by her high school peers and her fanatically religious mother begins to use her powers of telekinesis to exact revenge upon them. It's directed by the great Brian De Palma and based on the iconic first novel by Stephen King. It stars Sissy Spacek, Piper Laurie, Betty Buckley, Amy Irving, Nancy Allen, and John Travolta. Nominations here, it was nominated for two Oscars, Actress for Spacek and Supporting Actress for Laurie. And then Laurie was also nominated for the Golden Globe for supporting. My girl. (laughs) The ludicrous Margaret. These are godless times, Nick. Godless times. (laughs) Or overwhelmingly godly (laughs) in her case. So, yes, this was my first watch. I have been watching a lot of Brian De Palma. I felt like the final act was like very much him. Uh Uh-huh. But I kind of didn't see as much of him leading up to that as I wanted, Mm -hmm. maybe. I don't know if you agree or not with that. But I think it really builds well. You get that huge climax that is so satisfying. Mm -hmm. Lots of jump scares. Lots of imagery and great performances. And it's so good at making you feel this torturous high school angst from the very beginning to the very end. So what are your thoughts on Carrie and... Did you end up seeing this at a really young age, too? Yeah. So this was the first horror movie where I felt that thing that you experience in really good horror movies, which is just that you feel alive. It's almost that, like, you're so scared and you want to look away, but you're chasing that high and you have to see everything that's happening. You're just fully 
like in sync with this movie and that's how I felt when I was watching this as a middle school <laughs> student oh basically God. no idea why I was allowed to watch this as a child that's like not my problem but <laughs> um it was also the first movie that scared me really badly to where like I couldn't sleep I was so scared not of Carrie but of Margaret White her mother in such a deep way that she is the blueprint for every horror movie character that I've ever been afraid of for every religious mother that I see in like any movie or TV show after this one. Like if there is a zealot Mm -hmm. character, I will always go back to Margaret White because that performance and that character scared me so deeply. And I think it's because, well, we can get to Piper Laurie and her process Mm -hmm. and everything in a bit, but yeah, this movie is really important to me. It really is formative. It it kind of influenced like what I would like later on and how I would watch movies and what I would stay away from for a while and what I wanted to seek out. So I do see De Palma throughout, but in different ways than his later stuff because this is kind of early, like 70s De Palma. So the 80s stuff I think is much, uh, much more violent and like he's kind of mocking B-horror movies. I think he's doing a little bit of that here, but... I definitely see him come through throughout, but mostly because he opens with an ode to Hitchcock, his favorite filmmaker mm-hmm. ever. There was plenty of Hitchcock here. Mm-hmm. Wait, from the beginning, do you mean the shower scene? or? Yeah, so he he recreates the shower scene in Psycho. Oh, that's duh. what he, like, that's what he does, literally. So he, I love it because, you know, instead of a killer here, you have menstruation like is her problem like it's something that she doesn't understand and she's never been told so something Mm -hmm. that's you know harmless like is frightening to her and that's where the sadness of the story comes but I love how he he opens that way with this kind of like dreamy 70s aesthetic to the cinematography and to Mm -hmm. the following shots and that music and the the fonts and you also get another relationship between a main character and a mother so Another another little psycho <laughs> thing there, too. Except, unfortunately, for Carrie, her mother's still alive. And the name of the high school, which really triggered me uh-huh. back to Psycho, is Bates High School. Yep. Which is a direct reference, which I loved. But I think starting that movie with the image of these naked teenage girls, like, playing with towels in a locker room and running around and having that image before you see Carrie is just I mean it's a little unsettling yeah it's weird it's De Palma again like he's always like on the verge of exploitative (laughs) right like he you're kind of like am I supposed to and again that's also playing with Hitchcock am I supposed to be looking at this like is this an area like that I'm supposed to enter and I think that that with the way he shoots it with the look of it is so compelling because you you don't feel right about it but there's also like this innocence there and Mm -hmm. that innocence comes through again when you see Carrie and she just like Sissy Spacek is perfect for Carrie I can't imagine any other actress playing that part it was supposed to be Amy Irving which is nuts the only reason Sissy Spacek is even Carrie is because legendary Jack Fisk production designer who is her husband still to Mm -hmm. this day was like she needs this part. She auditioned oh. and she's Carrie. But she has that like innocent look to her. She has like a strange beauty to her where she can also look 
like very Midwestern and plain at the same time. It's Mm -hmm. perfect for this part. Yeah, like on one hand, she looks young and naive. And on the other hand, she does seem like mature, not necessarily Mm -hmm. old. So I think that dynamic to her facial expressions and seeing her react, a lot of the time she's reacting to her classmates bullying her. And I think watching her plays well. I agree. And all of the weirdness with like her telekinesis before we know really what it is at all, like starts happening from the very beginning, just in little ways, like a light Mm -hmm. will break or like the ashtray in the principal's office, like flings off of his desk because he keeps calling her the wrong name. Mm -hmm. Cassie. It's like, just get her name right. Like this poor girl. And then of course, like we go home to, her mother but before we even get there we see her mom as like this like makeupless tammy faye <laughs> i have in my notes and she speaks in this really wacky higher pitched voice too which adds to it but she's mm-hmm. like the teenager's path of salvation through the body of christ i pray you find jesus <laughs> and then i my next note is who is this woman <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wait, so this is your first time watching it. What was your like impression of Margaret White? This character or how he had her play this character is just so over the top. I don't think it needed to be this much so. Like, we get it. You know, she's a crazy religious mom mm-hmm. whose daughter is now a woman and her birthing Carrie scarred her for life. But she just takes it to another dimension And you mentioned before how she thought this movie was a comedy just from how she read the script and Mm -hmm. the scenes. And I think it's going to take me a few more watches to like get over that. This is so much barrier. Yeah. But I think that's what really scared me was I was just like, this is not how people act in the real world. And Mm -hmm. just knowing that someone could have a mother like this and is just was really scary but the way she read the script like she kept saying just that she thought the way the character was dressed and the things that she would say were just so absurd that it had to be a farce it had to be some sort of satire so they wanted her to play it really over the top i think it works like it does play with reality and the supernatural Mm mm-hmm Because obviously the finale and like using your telekinetic powers to murder everybody from your high school is like very outlandish and not real. But the acts that are happening to her and what she's going through like that is very real. And that's probably what De Palma is playing with too are Mm -hmm. all of these tropes and that's how you relate to Carrie in a way. I think Stephen King's books are notoriously hard to adapt because there is some supernatural element to it. And I think a lot of directors kind of fumble the ball there. But he, I think, he does really humanize her in a way that Stephen King even doesn't. So I think part of that, when I say her, I mean Carrie, not Margaret. (laughs) And the things that are happening to her are incredibly real. Like kids in high school are actually that mean, which is just the worst. Yeah, the way the kids bully her, it's maddening. So when the gym teacher finally punishes them and she slaps Chris, like, I was all for that. It's like, they Mm -hmm. need to suffer somehow, and she's not doing nearly enough. 
to make them know that this is obviously wrong and they don't care. They're yeah. kids throwing tampons at her in the shower and like making fun of her. And she tells Chris to spit out her gum at a different moment, too. And she's like, you can choke on it for all I care. It's like, yes, this is what we want. That's so good. <laughs> Betty Buckley is great in this movie. She wears so much blush at all times. Her hair is like so hairsprayed. It's great. She's like a perfect motherly figure to carry. Mm-hmm. She's like, you know, because she has this horrible mother at home. So it's nice, I think, for her to like have this woman who's really encouraging and kind to her. And really kind of puts these other girls in their place. I also love how it's like Nancy Allen and PJ Souls. And Nancy Allen, of course, is like a De Palma mainstay. You've probably seen her in your De Palma watches. And she was married Mm -hmm. to him at one point. Yeah. And PJ Souls, who's also in Halloween. Also, Edie McClurg is in this, who is also in like Ferris Bueller and a bunch of other movies. So I love like the supporting girls Mm -hmm. as mean as they are like very well cast as these mean teenagers. Nancy Allen is evil though. In this movie, her and John Travolta also his first movie. Yeah. She is horrid. Like I did not expect her to be such a villain. Uh And apparently they didn't either. Like they thought her and John Travolta's character were just like, comic relief for the movie because they were so over the top in a very different way compared to the mother so i don't know what that says about the script if all of these characters think there's something different but it all plays well on screen i don't know how to take all of that i think it comes down more to like the challenges with stephen king adaptations when you're reading a stephen king novel it's so much easier to like create these scenarios in your own head and like believe what's in front of you on the page as opposed to when you're watching a film. And I think that a character like Margaret White or like Chris in the book, it's easier to see them that way. My favorite thing that Chris does, which I just think is like so, so evil, is when she and John Travolta are in that car and like in the middle of hooking up, she says, I hate Carrie White. That is so good. (laughs) I laughed out loud at that moment. It's like, wow, you are so evil that you're thinking about this right now. You Mm -hmm. really, really hate her. And And she she did nothing to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then talking about John Travolta really quickly, this was the year before Saturday Night Fever. He very much rose exponentially from here. It's always exciting to see him. And he doesn't pop up until like pretty late in the movie. I had no idea he was going to be in this either. So when he showed up, I was shocked. Oh, yeah. It's exciting. So Amy Irving, who was going to play Carrie, plays Sue. What did you think of her? I don't know if I ever fully believed that they were trying to atone for how she and Tommy as well bullied her or just didn't stop Chris from being such a terrible person to her. So, like, Tommy taking her to the prom and Sue having this change of heart, I don't know if I, like, fully believe that. Or it didn't come across for me well enough on screen. Mm -hmm. I think that final moment when she's going to stop Chris from pulling the rope, that moment is done really well. Because when the teacher pulls her away, that's when you finally want her to come through and protect Carrie and she can't. I hate this character. Like, I will just say this. I think she's the villain of the movie. Like, Chris, yes, is evil and Margaret, but they're, like, cartoon evil. This girl is the worst in that, like, she is trying to help Carrie, 
Really? You think that's going to work? Your boyfriend taking her to the prom? You don't think your horrible classmates are going to do something to her? Like, you're an yeah. idiot, Sue. Like, please. I, I can't with her. I really, like, every time I watch the movie. So, like, Tommy's poem and Tommy taking her to the prom. Cruelty. How do you? Okay. Okay. Awful. <laughs> Is disingenuous and cruel to lead Carrie on like that. She's never had these experiences before. Now her mother is going to be even more awful. Like when she sees her in the prom dress and she's like, you have dirty pillows. Like what the hell? Like what, (laughs) what is going on? (laughs) But yeah, it's just like, she ruins everything. Like, yes, they pull the rope, but she also didn't really try that hard to stop them. Yeah. Like she didn't crawl under there and tell them to stop. Like, pull the rope out of there. Cut it. Do something. Do something. Scream. Like, do something. Yeah. Be clear. I don't know. My favorite thing that De Palma does here is how he blocks and stages the entire prom scene. Mm -hmm. It's just really brilliant. Like, I love the split screen. I love the way he uses sound when he cuts out the sound. And you know that everyone is just yelling, but it's just, you can't hear anything. And you know something bad is about to happen. And then it just, it becomes like a Jalo horror film. Like, this is the exorcism from The Exorcist. Like, this is what you Mm -hmm. came for. Mm -hmm. He uses so many different techniques that work really well together, ratcheting up the tension, almost in this like dizzying spell where there are so many things happening and he does a good job in showing you all of these separately. And it was like way more than I expected to see. Like watching the teacher basically get cut in half. I was Mm -hmm. like, oh my God. And the other teacher was electrocuted. Truly wild. And I loved it. I love it too. And no one is safe. And in that moment too, you're kind of like, good for you. These people have been so cruel to her that you kind Mm -hmm. of want her to just like unleash on them. At least I do when I watch it. But it's also, I think, just so sad that you just want someone to like, protect her and give her a hug and comfort her but no one is there to do that the other really sad moment during this scene is when the kaleidoscope is going and she's seeing everybody laugh at her and they show Mm -hmm. that teacher laughing at her but you Mm -hmm. know she really cares for carrie and it's like carrie is so alone in this moment and embarrassed that nobody was going to be on her side and understanding this character and that she's at this point It's Mm -hmm. like, this was the final straw, and it makes total sense. Right. And I think with that, too, like, I love how he sets up that spinning camera, like, when they're Mm -hmm. dancing, to just make it feel like this is this, like, fairy tale moment for Carrie. Like, she's experiencing happiness for the first time, or, like, she's feeling cared for. And then, like, her mother, that voice in her head, like, that's what triggers her into... Like, thinking that everyone's laughing at her is her psycho mom saying they're all going to laugh at you in that crazy voice that I can imitate, but I'm not going to. We can put in the audio if we want to do that. (laughs) Yeah, that shot with the spinning and how it gets faster and faster Mm -hmm. is so great. And of course, I love the scene when she's walking like out of the school and Nancy Mm -hmm. Allen and John Travolta in the car made me think of Ma. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) There's like one shot that I wonder if they actually took in Ma, like from Carrie. They might have. Yeah. (laughs) 
I, I love so. that connection now. <laughs> and I think what he's doing here, so it's real, it's supernatural, but it's also just camp. Mm-hmm. The mom is obviously camp, but having the like flying fire hose in the prom too, uh-huh. yeah. and like just spraying down people and people like falling over tables, like it's over the top where it's funny, but that doesn't distract from also the horror of it. Yeah. The funniest stuff that does kind of take me out of it a little bit is when she goes home. It's so scary in that house. Like, it just with the <laughs> thousands of candles. Like, candles on the bed? Like, what is going yeah. on? They're all lit. The wooden arches that are just, like, set up like a triptych. Like, it just looks like a really <laughs> disturbing church with the light-up Jesus and everything. And just, like, the way that, like, poor Carrie, like, Margaret is standing behind that doorway. Mm-hmm. And... It makes sense that that would scare me as a kid, but now watching it, I'm like, <laughs> what movie is this woman in? <laughs> like, is she playing hide and seek? Why is she waiting for Carrie to come home and behind this door? <laughs> so she can kill her. It's so, so scary. Because, like, for her, right, like, everything with the Bible and being afraid of sex, like, Carrie is her ultimate punishment for her sin. So it's this, like, whole big thing, which you're just like... Please, like, yeah. put your Bible down. Like, I don't know. <laughs> but all of the phrases I learned, all of the Bible phrases that Piper Laurie says are fake. Like, none of those things are in the Bible. Oh, my God. The numbers aren't in the Bible. Like, it's all fake, which is really funny, I think, too. <laughs> Another layer of camp. Mm-hmm. Which reminds me of that earlier scene when she goes to Sue's house and tries mm-hmm. to sell the Bible to her mom. And the mom gives her money, and she's, like, so upset and rages out. <laughs> It's like so much. It's like you need it. Look at your house exterior. Like take the money. <laughs> yeah, what do you matter about? It's what you came here for. Yeah. You want to like actually convert people. The teens are up to no good and she is there. They're her mission. I do love the imagery of Margaret when Carrie flings all the knives into her and her head falls mm-hmm. to the side like Jesus on the cross. Excellent work, Piper and Brian. Yeah, and all of the utensils are in the same location as on the Jesus statue, too. Mm-hmm. So it's it's perfect. We needed Ooh. her eyes to like light up red light or up. something. <laughs> yeah. That would have been so great. I think the ending just like, they just don't let you off the hook. Full camp, this house just like falling to pieces. Like it's not even real in the first place. And the actual ending of this movie, we get what is maybe the best jump scare ever. It's so good. Yeah, I was not expecting that to happen. You know, we get another white dress as Mm -hmm. Sue walks up with the flowers and she's mourning the loss of Carrie. But I read that in the original ending that they couldn't film because of technical issues. Carrie's house was supposed to be destroyed by falling stones from a meteorite. But I do like how that house, like, falls into the earth, like, into hell. Mm -hmm. And then you have the stones, and she reaches up while Sue's dreaming. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I love, too. I mean, it's it's another, yes, it's scary, but it's also, it's more sadness, right? Because even in the end, like, Carrie is still just, like, reaching out for help, maybe. Reaching out for Mm. a friend, just like she has been this whole time. And I kind of love that it's to the girl who just should have left her alone. Yeah. Ooh, that's great. <laughs> Maybe that's what De Palma is saying. I don't know. It's a great movie, though. I love it. 
the other psycho reference is him using the actual score, those four mm-hmm. notes. Yes, I love that. My favorite use early on is when that kid is riding the bike mm-hmm. and he's like, creepy Carrie. And you just hear the notes and he falls <laughs> off his bike, like wipes out. <laughs> it's so funny. So then talking a little bit about the Oscars here, we have the two nominations for both actresses. Well, this is no contest here, but Best Actress went to Faye Dunaway for Network this year. <laughs> so I'm not going to ask you if you think <laughs> Sissy's Basic should have won. No, we, we know the answer. <laughs> but, <laughs> but with Supporting Actress, this was the iconic shortest performance that won with Beatrice Strait from Network. So how do you feel about Piper Laurie here and her potential <laughs> at winning? I like I'm going to sound fully cracked and I know that but I would have voted for her like she is so memorable in this part and like yes there are a lot of unanswerable questions for me about her performance I would love to talk to her she is still alive I would absolutely love to interview her about this performance but yeah I would vote for her I mean Beatrice Strait is amazing in those six minutes but Piper Laurie's Margaret White and I gotta go for it I would vote for her I do think like she got nominated because she had been working for a really long time at this point. She took a really long break. So she's nominated for Best Actress for The Hustlers. And then that was in 61. She wasn't in another movie until 76 with Carrie. So I'm sure this was kind of like a welcome mm-hmm. back nomination. And like, what a return. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god yeah she's kind of operating on her own wavelength here like she's doing something completely different and i'm gonna give her credit for that and because it has stayed with me for at this point 15 years Mm -hmm. i'm okay if people disagree with me like i expect people to and do you think anything was snubbed here I would have given it a screenplay nomination. I think where we are now, we're lucky to like be able to look back on these races and pick and choose. But this was the first Stephen King adaptation. And now we have like hundreds. So I think just being the first one and being a really good one, I could make room mm-hmm. for it. Some of these that are nominated, like I don't think have the lasting impact that Carrie does. All the President's Men won that year. That's not going anywhere, but I think there's definitely room for it to be nominated. Also, we don't need to get into it here today, but if you're curious, look up the story about Piper Laurie and Ronald Reagan, because maybe she channeled some of that energy into this performance. That's all I'm going to say. You can look it up on your own. (laughs) What? (laughs) Yeah. I feel like either cinematography or art direction, Mm -hmm. the set design especially for the prom sequence is incredible. Cinematography, we had the Streisand Stars Born and Network Bound for Glory ended up winning. And then for art direction, all the president's men won. I think with that childhood house and the school, the way they framed the shower sequence, I feel like I would have given it one of those. I guess following that up with, how do you think today's Academy would have received this movie? Not well. I do think, though, A24 and Neon would be chomping at the bit for a movie like this. Because if Mm -hmm. packaged correctly, like, the teens 
would love this. I would love to see like what A24 would come up with for some Margaret White-esque merch. You know they would be all over that. So I do think it would have its place, but it would be much more in the indie sort of space and could be big with critics, but mm-hmm. not the Oscars, I don't think. What about you? Well, MGM and Sony Pictures did the remake with Chloe Grace Moretz in 2013. No, that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> no. I didn't see that, and I definitely wasn't going to watch that before I saw the original. So, And Julianne Moore is Margaret White in that one. Oh, yeah. really? Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. Is she good? I never, I didn't watch it. Mm-mm. Oh, you didn't either. <laughs> but yeah, I agree. I don't think it would do well at all. The two Oscars that it did get nominations for, I guess that makes sense. But if they're going to give them nominations, I see them getting more mm-hmm. too. I don't know, kind of a weird dynamic, but... I do think that film Twitter would have loved Piper Laurie and like would have championed her getting a supporting actress nomination. It would have been a thing. It just feels like that performance that people would think is hilarious and would talk about all season. I think that's you. No, you would be I definitely would on film Twitter. <laughs> I'm not saying I would not, but I feel that people would be into it because it is so crazy. And if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? Do it. The power of Christ compels you. I know you you will. (laughs) I'm going to go with art direction and continue what I was saying earlier. Yeah, I'm going to give Piper Laurie her Oscar for Best Supporting Actress. What a memorable (laughs) gift. A scarring gift, Mm -hmm. for sure. We talked about two of my favorite movies ever, especially horror movies and... I think it was fun to like look back on both of these. I'm so happy you got to visit Carrie for the first time. And it's pretty cool that these were both recognized in some way by the Academy. Yeah, I definitely love that they were. And I'm glad that I finally got to see a very iconic movie that inspired horror movies to come, or at least one that directors make homages to a lot. Both of them, really. And this may not be the end for 70s horror movies for us yet. Maybe if we don't do them this year, we'll have to cover next year. Yeah, I will cover a 70s horror movie at any time. We'll be covering a sequel to a 70s horror movie very soon. And next up on Oscar Wilde, it's time. (laughs) (laughs) We finally get to discuss Dune, which we've both seen... My God, you're at a loss for words. Um, Truly speechless. Yeah, I'm. Yes, I have so many thoughts. I'm excited to chat about it. I won't give any spoilers away or (laughs) really any of my reactions, but there is a lot to talk about, Mm -hmm. and the hype was worth it. The wait was worth it. I had a great time. (laughs) Are you going to tell everyone what you said to me right before you saw it? Do you remember? It was like the equivalent of like. After this, I won't have anything else to live for for a while. Something (laughs) like that. (laughs) Well, my crazy tweet, um, it's partially true. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah, so we both saw Dune at New York Film Festival. I'm very excited to talk about it with you and to kind of break everything down. It's an experience, Mm -hmm. and I'm excited for everyone to see it and to just talk about its Oscar potential because I think it has quite a bit of it, so... It'll be fun. Thank you all for listening. If you like our show, rate, review, and subscribe. And you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Oscar Wilde Pod. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week. Bye.